Welcome to Straight Talk Wealth, heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. with your experts in all aspects of wealth accumulation, preservation, and income planning guaranteed to last a lifetime. And now, your host of Straight Talk Wealth, Bruce Whitey, on News Talk 1590 KVTA. And I love listening to him on Sunday morning. <laughs> Good morning, Ventura. Hey, how are you kids doing today? <laughs> this is a child's program, isn't it? No, this is this program is for mature adults. Very sexy. This is Straight Talk Wealth Radio. This is where we bridge the gap between what is going on in the world economy, what's going on in this crazy upside down market timing that we live in. Uh, I definitely believe the world is a different place today for people trying to save their money, trying to retire, than it was for our folks. You mind if I don't and it was a generation ago. And uh, if you don't believe things are different today, I believe you're whistling in a hurricane. Gentlemen, Ciccolini here may talk like an idiot and look like an idiot, but don't let that fool you. He really is an idiot. Now, along that line, along that line, we had a wonderful event recently called A Thief in the Night. Why the next great crash in stocks is inevitable by 2020. And we laid it all out on the line. And we told folks not only why we strongly believe that's going to happen, but what to do about it and how to actually make good gains and lots of great uh, potential to do very well, even if the markets crash. I'm going to play you some uh, people talking after the event. We're going to cover a few clips of people that what they had to say about the event and speaking afterwards. So, going to do that in a minute. And today is really like a laid back day. I have uh, today and next week, I have a two part episode we're going to do. And I interviewed the most fascinating uh, person that I heard on Prager University. Her name is Nicole Jelinas. Now, I uh, discovered her by watching a uh, Prager University video on YouTube called Should Government Bail Out Big Banks? And she was narrating this. And I was quite taken with how her point of view is very similar to the problems of capitalism that David Stockman has been talking about. So I uh, looked up where she was. I got dug up her uh, phone number. She is, by the way, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She is a Searle Freedom Trust fellow. Sounds prestigious, and I bet it is. At the Manhattan Institute. She's a contributing editor of City Journal. She writes on urban economics and finance and is very outspoken. I mean, she's out there. She talks about municipal and corporate finance and business issues. She's a chartered financial analyst. I'll give you her all of her CV here in a little bit. Um, she has had opinion pieces on the op-ed pages of New York Times, Wall Street Journals, L.A. Times, San Diego Union Tribune. Hey, listen, you know, you don't commonly call people up like this, a lowlife like me, in a lowly little radio station in Ventura that I hope people are listening to on a Sunday morning and snag good interviews. But, you know, I have my ways. And I was very, very, very appreciative. Not only... In getting this interview, which we're going to play this week and next week, which is really all about her book. Well, it's not about her book. It's about the topics covered in her book. They were not only so kind to give me the interview, they gave me 10 of her books to give away. 
And I'm going to give a phone number out in a little bit. We'll talk about it. And you can, if you have not ordered from us, if you have not called the show in the last year, you're qualified to get one of these 10 books that I happen to have on hand. The book is called After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington. And that is exactly what this interview is about. So I'm going to name the show. This show today is called Episode 1 of Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington, and it centers around my interview with Nicole Gelinas. Don't miss this. She is very, very bright, very, very down-to-earth. And I have to tell you guys, the real thing I enjoyed about this is was taking a professor's, an academic's point of view about the corruption of capitalism, about the, the, the asset bubbles created by the Fed, and and she's not necessarily coming from the viewpoint that I come from, that Harry Dent com, comes from, which is an investor's viewpoint. What does this mean to your portfolio? You know, our great concern about all of this is what's going to happen to our 401ks. Well, she's concerned about that. But you know what? She She's more of an academic. So her actual point of orientation is more about, well, what's really important of all of this, and if we crash markets and we do this, Oh, yeah, I guess you investors will get hurt. But I'm thinking about jobs in America. I'm thinking about keeping people employed. I'm thinking about keeping America moving forward. So she has this much more almost sociological viewpoint about why these things matter than necessarily an investor's viewpoint. So you're going to hear things that are very, very, very important to investors uh, from my interview with her today and next week. But you're also going to have that. uh, I'm going to be prodding her at times to come back and tell me what this means to investors. So uh, it's a very well-rounded viewpoint. I I really, really enjoyed uh, talking to her. And we'll get into that in a minute. But the first thing I want to do is I want to give you a little recap of our event. We had a wonderful event at the River Ridge Golf Club in Oxnard. Um, and, uh, I was just amazed that we were able to keep everybody's interest for a four hour event, but, uh, don't take my word for it. As my son often plays on his reading rainbow videos. Don't take my word for it. Says LaBar Burton. Um, we're going to give you some, uh, I'm going to play you a few minutes here of the comments people had to say about the event, what they got from, we will do it again, pay close attention. And I want you to really pay close attention to our website, the financial learning lounge.com the financial learning lounge.com now we will keep future events posted there we've got several events we're going to be doing now we're going to be doing the thief in the night that's a kind of a economics 101 event uh and uh everybody should come to that one right away and get all the grounding but we're going to do some what we call spin-off events. We'll probably do another event that'll just be, we had people at the event say, I want to hear more about Europe and China, what's going on and all that. And Okay, let's do a more advanced uh, global economics event once somebody's come to the 101. But we're also going to do events on, uh, I have a lot of concerns about long-term care. I've had a lot of people uh, ask me about changes in long-term care coverage and and we're going to do a show we get into what happens if you go on medical uh what kinds of long-term care coverage can you get your money back out of that is liquid that's not just pouring money down an insurance policy that you may never see again how many people are really going to be affected by the need for long-term care 
I'm going to do a whole workshop on that. We'll be doing a show on it, but we're going to turn that into a workshop. That'll be hung out on the uh, financiallearninglounge.com. You'll find out where that is. That'll probably be just like a 90-minute event we'll do on a weeknight. Uh, we're going to do events on Warren Buffett's best-kept secrets. And I'm going to go more into how life settlements work and how they are returning a 65% return on investment in many cases consult your financial advisor and tax advisor and disclaimer, 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 because you're not supposed to do too much without all the legal documents on the air. But uh, that's the basics of it. These things are returning about 65%. Uh, they are not liquidating. You have to you know, look over time on what they do. But very important thing you should know about uh, in a portfolio, great diversification in a portfolio. We'll do an event. That'll be 90 minutes on that one evening. A month, hopefully. Uh, we have another one on Social Security. We're going to do a great Social Security event, not only on how to maximize your Social Security, but it'll be all about Medic- Medicare, uh, Medicare coverage, gap insurances, and stuff like that. So we've got four great events. We're going to try to do, as repeat them as often as possible, maybe once a month for each one, but all of that will be at the thefinanciallearninglounge.com. But with no further ado, let's see if people liked four hours that John Grace and I put into doing this uh, this Thief in the Night event or whether it was a big waste of time to show up. Joke, joke, joke. Let's hear what people had to say. I thought it was very informative. I learned a, a, a lot. I heard a lot of stuff that I hadn't heard from most people. I like the, the fact that you'll contact us if you feel a, a change in the market's coming or, or something like that. And I learned a whole bunch about annuities that we really were, were not informed of before. Alternative source of investments is what was interesting and learning about the cycles in the market. Sell the real estate. That really stuck to me, sell the real estate, use that cash for something else. I think what I found more positive was being able to look at our own situation and gauge it to where we want to be. So to look at the goals and to see how we can reach the goals. That was the most optimistic part of the seminar during the worksheet. My wife and I have been to approximately six seminars in the last two months, all financial-based that have been advertised on the radio and so forth. And um, we found this one really to be more open to a variety of investments, not just a sales pitch, and uh, a lot more informative, I mean, as far as what we really need to do. And, and it's, I think it's going to get us you know, on the right track. Learned that the equity side of things can be protected a lot more. You know, in that investing, and also that the uh, the equity market or the annuity market has evolved to places that it might be appealing to me now. The uh, mini education in economics and demographics was very valuable to, I think, our decision making. Just to see where where the population is going and what what's going to be important to the baby boomers and how the economy has depended on us so much and as we wind down it is the economy has to go with it 
I thought it was great. It was very informative. Um, I heard things at this event because I have been to other events that I hadn't heard before. And I particularly liked the beginning where you showed how everything is changing. But then again, there are some things that are the same with the flow of how things go. Put a little fear <laughs> into me with, you know, what's going on with the stock market. But it also showed me how there are ways that with with the holdings that I have now that I can protect them and actually see them grow in a safe way. It wasn't a sales pitch. It was more information that, that it gave me to make a decision to make a change. You know, and not just give me this and I can do this for you. You know, it was more the information and that's that's really what I came for was to get the information. As a lecturer, it was great. He, very concise. Learned a lot with with the flow of how he went through things. It, it was great. Easy to understand. So, yes, I, I definitely come to another one. So, very good. Very good. And I love listening to him on Sunday morning. <laughs> well, that was very nice of her. <laughs> she was a sweetheart. Hey, um, so we did have a lot of fun. This was the uh, folks that were coming out of our event, which we will be doing again. Play close attention to the financiallearninglounge.com where we feature the event called A Thief in the Night, Why the Next Great Crash. I mean, great crash. I mean, Dow back down to 50% by 2020 is inevitable. And we'll be doing that event again. That was, uh, we covered a lot of different ground. And, you know, the thing I liked hearing about that was that people, we did, we, this is what we wanted people to feel and what we wanted them to take away was that this was about variety. This isn't a sales pitch seminar. We're spending the first several hours into just what makes the economy work. What are the, uh, engines of the economy? What are the threats to the economy? What does Fed money printing do ultimately? What is deflation and inflation? All of the things you hear about on the show where we could really not just kind of buzz through it in an hour, but take the time to go through it, see people's heads bob, make sure they're understanding it, pull off to the side, explain something a little bit more if people needed to get it. I love, love, love doing events like that. So, you know, again, you hear people talk about, they heard about stocks, but they also heard about alternative investing. They heard about equities as well as annuities. Um, and people said over and over again, it was not a sales pitch, which is exactly how we wanted to build the event. So uh, thank you so much for the guys that came to that. I really appreciate it. Now let's move on. I got a great show today. Uh, it is basically entitled Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington. It is built off of the work of Nicole Gelinas. And what I want to play for you right now is uh, about five minutes of the actual Prager University video that she did on why large banks should not be bailed out by government. And you'll get her... Uh, you know, clean reasoning and uh, her, her brightness out of this and her basic position. And then I'm going to go into an in-depth uh, interview that I had with her recently. Uh, and, and again, I love the perspective because it's almost a, a sociological 
Uh, how do we keep the country employed? How do we build up a middle class in this country viewpoint, as opposed to investors' viewpoint? But as investors, you guys want to pay very, very close attention to the things that she has to say. So first, um, let me tell you this. I'm going to give you a phone number now. So her office, and and again, let me actually go into, uh, here's the phone number. Okay, then I'll talk about her CV for a minute. Phone number is 888-882-5578. 888 You must not have called in the last one year. If you have not called us in the last year, I only have 10 of her books to give out today. So uh, Nicole Gelinas is a Searle Freedom Trust Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, all the way on the other coast. She's a contributing editor of City Journal. She writes on urban economics and finance, municipal and corporate finance, and business issues. She's a chartered financial analyst. She's a charter holder and a member of the New York Society of Securities Analysts. And her most recent book called After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington, was actually published in 2009. Now, let me tell you that that doesn't matter. And we're giving the book out today. They literally, they were so nice. They literally pulled 10 books off their shelf and sent them to me out of her office. Oh, I should have had her autograph them. Wouldn't that have been great? Oh, well. (laughs) Maybe if it's not too late, I'll try to get them autographed. No promises. Um, It was published November 2009 by Encounter Books, but it's still a really great tome because... Now, first of all, let me just say that she's published all over the place. She's done analysis and opinion pieces in the op-ed pages of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, San Diego Union Tribune, the New York Sun, the New York Daily News, the New York Post, the Dallas Morning News, the New Orleans Times-Picayune, the Boston Herald, and she's also written for Crane's New York Business and National Review Online. Uh, She was a business journalist for a while at the Thompson Financial uh, Network, I guess, Uh, Thompson Financial in New York, where she covered international syndicated loan and private debt markets. And she wrote a regular op-ed column for the New York Post. Uh, So anyway, she's great to talk to. I'm going to give you the uh, Prager University video where I discovered uh, what she had to say and got on to uh, looking her up, see if we can get an interview. And... um, Let's listen to that. In the meantime, if you want a copy of her book, and the thing about the book, here's the thing you need to know about the book. So the book here, first of all, here's what Steve Forbes said about her book. A very timely book as the U.S. and other major countries debate new regulations for the financial industry. In the critical area of too big to fail, the author's proposals are serious and substantive enough to possess considerable merit. And uh, in regards to the book, I'll read you a little synopsis here. Robust financial markets support capitalism. They don't imperil it. But in 2008, Washington policymakers were compelled to replace private risk takers in the financial system with government capital so that the money and credit flows wouldn't stop precipitating a depression. In other words, if they had let the credit flows and money stop, the idea is that we would have precipitated a depression. Washington's actions weren't the start of government distortions in the financial industry, Nicole Gelinas writes, but the natural result of 25 years worth of such distortions. In the early 80s, she goes on in this book and tells you where we really started 
bailing out the financial system in the 80s and got onto the drug and got hooked on the drug. Uh, the government gradually adopted a too-big-to-fail policy for the largest and most financial institutions, and as a result, these companies become impervious to the vital market discipline that the threat of loss provides. That's the nature of her story. Very similar to the David Stockman book. I must tell you, though, it's not 750 pages like David's book. So it's a little easier to get through, but a great history of how we got to a point where our financial markets are addicted to the government's intervention in order to carry on and the threat and what that means. And I'm going to be covering all of that this week and next week in my extensive one-on-one interview with her. But to get out of the gate, let's listen to her um, her video with Prager University. And if you want a copy of her book and you haven't contacted us in the last year, you can call 888-882-5578, 888 888- Eight eight two five five seven eight. Leave your full contact information with the operator, and we will get that book out to you. I do need email to follow up. We need a phone to follow up to make sure you got your book because we will be calling to make sure they arrive. Uh, but outside of that, we don't distribute that information. It is for us only to make sure that we can be in touch that you got your book. But we'll give you a copy of Nicole's book after the fall. Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington by Nicole Gelinas. And let's listen to her. She's a lot less obnoxious than me. By the way, uh, I do have to say, if you if you aren't aware of Prager University, <laughs> sorry to keep interrupting here, but listen, go check YouTube and look at these videos by Dennis Prager that are made by his team, Prager University. They're very graphic, meaning that as the person's lecturing and telling you this, there's all kinds of graphics and pictures that are going on behind it that help tell the story and can help enlighten you on understanding the fact pattern. So you're going to hear a few noises in the background while Nicole's talking here. Those noises are coming off the video where they're showing little things happening with the graphics and sound effects. In 2008, America experienced the biggest meltdown of its financial sector since the Great Depression. The conventional wisdom is that this failure in subsequent government rescue, commonly known as the bailout, was brought about by three decades of bank deregulation. There were a lot of causes for the meltdown, but deregulation wasn't one of them. Ironically, it wasn't because the banks had become unmoored from government control that led them into the financial storm. It was because they had become too closely tied to governments. For three decades, Uncle Sam, like an enabling parent, had always been there when the big banks got into trouble. The shock in 2008 was that for one brief moment, Uncle Sam wasn't there. In the wee hours of September 15, 2008, Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. The financial industry waited for the feds to step in and save Lehman bondholders like it had saved those of Bear Stearns some months earlier. That didn't happen. Global financial markets seized up as the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 498 points, or nearly 4.4%. Financial institutions effectively went on strike. Banks wouldn't lend money to other banks, and thus indirectly to the public, because they had no idea which financial institution might go belly up next. The economy can withstand a stock market crash, but a credit market freeze, essentially a cash freeze, can cause a depression, as credit underpins almost all business and personal activities. Indeed, some large companies, including General Electric, were so dependent on these short-term credit markets that they were in danger of not being able to pay their workers. The financial industry pleaded with the government to act. Later in the same day, September 15th, it did. The feds wouldn't save Lehman's, but it would save AIG, the primary insurer of mortgage loans. 
A month later, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, a $700 billion plan to pump taxpayer cash into America's banks and financial institutions was approved by Congress. Public officials generally agreed that the free market had failed. In November 2008, President George W. Bush came to New York to explain why he, a Republican president, had signed TARP into law. I'm a market-oriented guy, but not when I'm faced with the prospect of a global meltdown, he said. But free market capitalism had not melted down. Again, the problem was not that banks had been too free, but that they had grown too dependent on government over the last few decades. Here's a brief history. America's first post-depression bailout of a big bank came in 1984, when the Republican administration of Ronald Reagan, with help from the Federal Reserve, bailed out Continental Illinois, the eighth largest commercial bank in the nation. The bailout introduced the phrase, too big to fail, to the financial media's vocabulary. The premise for rescuing Continental was simple. The bank had many global bondholders, big investors, and the government feared that the bondholders might pull their money out of all American banks if they saw that a bank like Continental could fail. That might have stemmed a short-term panic, but it created a long-term monster. The government had effectively said to financial markets, if you lend money to a big bank, it's just like lending money to the U.S. Treasury, only it's better because the banks will pay you more interest than you can get from your Treasury bonds. And so money poured in from investors. The banks got bigger and more reckless. And when the next crisis rippled through the financial industry, there was Uncle Sam ready with his checkbook. In 1998, the government, this time under Democrat Bill Clinton, bailed out long-term capital management, a hedge fund that teetered at the edge of bankruptcy and threatened to drag some banks down with it. The message to the banks was clearer than ever. Take bigger risks. Uncle Sam would be there if anything went wrong. Indeed, as I noted, early in the crisis, in March 2008, the government brokered the purchase of the Bear Stearns Investment Bank to J.P. Morgan to save its bondholders and other creditors from suffering huge losses. And that summer, Washington rescued Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the giant government-sponsored mortgage companies. It's the fact that the government didn't rescue Lehman Brothers that set off the 2008 panic, because the financial world simply assumed that Uncle Sam would. Would we have been better off had the government saved Lehman's? Maybe in the short run, but it's likely that crisis would have occurred anyway. Because banks assumed that the government would always bail them out, their risk models by 2008 were all out of whack. Conservative practices like lending only to creditworthy borrowers, a relic of the past. What's the solution? How do we bring sanity back to the financial industry? Not by passing thousands of new regulations. The bank's army of accountants, lawyers, and lobbyists can always work their way around those. The solution is that the government must stop guaranteeing the big bank's losses. Only then will bondholders, the big investors like pension funds and insurance companies who lend the financial sector the money they need to operate, have an incentive to police the industry. It's that simple. I'm Nicole Gelinas, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Prager University. Okay, you're going to hear my interview with her shortly uh, this week and next week. I'm going to get into that in a minute. But I just want to point out, why is this relevant? Why do we bring the academics on? Why do we talk about what's going on at the big government level when we're just trying to get ahead in life and maintain our 401k and our IRAs and in our stock accounts? Because 
you heard it in there. The risk models get out of whack. And that's what we really want you to understand. That is the essence of why we are so against the government zero interest rates, why we talk so much to opinion leaders and intellectuals that are looking at the fact that we don't know what the value of stocks are anymore. We don't know what the real value of any assets are anymore because they're based on the government printing money. And the problem here is not going to be an inflationary and the government debt and all that is one problem. But the problem right now is that all that loose money holds down interest rates. Interest rates should be dictated by real risk, the real risk people feel. But if they don't feel it because they think there's always a bailout, there's always cheap money coming behind, then assets start taking on prices that don't really reflect the real risk model. And you heard her talk about that in this uh, video. So great video. Go check YouTube for Prager University. Again, uh, you're listening to Straight Talk Wealth Radio. We are here every Sunday morning on KVTA 1590 News Talk KVTA. And I am interviewing today Nicole Gelinas. She is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal. Oh, my gosh. She's been publishing op-ed pages from New York Times, Wall Street Journal, L.A. Times, all over the country. Very, very outspoken about the, the danger of government interference presents, the danger that government interference presents to markets and market pricing and the bubbles that creates. So if you want a copy of her book, by the way, while you're listening to the show today, and by the way, we're done at top of the hour. So you have to call during the show to get the book. If you have not called us in the last year, in the last 12 months, then you can call today. Uh, numbers 888-882-5578, 888-882-5578. That's 888-882-5578. Five five seven eight, and we will give you a free copy. We only have ten, so you got to be within the first ten callers of Nicole Gelinas's book, "After the Fall: Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington." And with no further ado, let's talk to Nicole Gelinas about that very topic. Whilst you dial triple eight 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 two five five seven eight, you said recently that the problem in two thousand eight was not that the banks had been too free, but they had grown too dependent. In other words, you know, everybody thinks, oh, the banks just went loose and went crazy doing these crazy things and no one put reins on them. They got us all in trouble and the government wasn't there to put a clamp on it. And you say that they've grown too dependent on government over the last decades is the problem, not that they had been too free. So let me just... Let me just first of all say that our listeners know that that runs a very similar line to David Stockman about the corruption of capitalism. So let's go back a little bit. Where did capitalism come off the rails? And, and if it did come off the rails due to, you know, give us a little background in history and how we got to where we are today. But then I, I also want to circle back once you've done that and ask you a little bit about what problem were they trying to solve in doing that? But first... Tell us a little bit how we got here in terms of the history, how government has gotten, how Wall Street and the banking system and capitalism become so dependent and so liable to what the government's trying to do to quote unquote help it. Sure, and thanks, Bruce, for having me on the show, and thanks to all your listeners for uh, putting some time to this topic. 
Well, people think of too big to fail as something that came out of the 2008 crisis. But when we look at the history of what went wrong with the banks and the financial system, we've really had too big to fail for 30 years. And we had it for 25 years before the financial crisis started. If you look back to the 1980s, in 1984, we had our first too big to fail bank. In 84, a bank called Continental Illinois, which was the seventh or eighth largest bank in the country, depending on whose list you look at, they started to, they had made some very bad loans, very bad investments, and they started to go under. And what should have happened is the FDIC should have just protected small depositors and everybody else, the large bondholders, the uh, other large depositors and other large lenders, they should have had to go through bankruptcy process and perhaps uh, take some losses if, if there wasn't enough equity to absorb the losses. And that is that is how we had bank failures from the 1930s to the 1980s. The banks failed. Nobody got bailed out except for if you got a few thousand dollars in the bank, you get your money back. And that that was pretty good, solid policy. 1984, we changed that. The Reagan administration, the Federal Reserve chairman, Paul Volcker, Mm -hmm. the FDIC chairperson at the time, uh, all said, we can't let Continental fail because the banking system has changed. They've got bondholders from Japan. They've got bondholders from all over the world. They're very reliant on short-term money. So if, if they fail, other banks that are reliant on short-term money, these global investors will pull their money out of these banks, too. And so just to be careful, we better guarantee all of these large global bondholders and guarantee the large depositors, and we won't let it fail through the normal way of doing things. Now, in the short term, maybe they made the right decision. If the bank had failed and we had a financial crisis, we could have gone back into recession in 84. We were just recovering from the recession of, uh, that had ended in 1982. Yeah. But over the long term, it was the wrong decision because if you are an investor, after that, you knew that if you put your money into a large global bank, uh, if you were a bondholder in this bank or you had large deposits in this bank or you invested in the money markets, you knew that the U.S. government would come and bail you out, that they wouldn't let a very large bank fail through the normal process. And we saw that through the SNL crisis. Large banks were bailed out in a different way than small banks, which just went through the FDIC process. And that different way generally involved protecting the large bondholders and large depositors. And so we effectively started to subsidize big banks by informally guaranteeing their lenders in their large depositors. So it is no wonder that people started saying, well, it's pretty safe for me to buy a, a bond in a bank, and the banks just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and that it's sort of a straight line there to 2008. A few other events in between, uh, the bailout of long-term capital management, 1998, they pretty much just... Which was a hedge fund. It wasn't even a bank. Right. And that was an interesting case, because the uh, people said, well, it's not a bailout because there's no federal money involved, but this hedge fund should have just gone bankrupt. Federal Reserve was afraid to see it go bankrupt, so they forced all these banks to come together and say, okay, you banks are going to bail out this hedge fund. Now, at the time, they could do it, but a few years later, the problem had gotten so big that the banks could no longer bail themselves out. They they needed, and these were investment banks. These were not old-fashioned commercial banks. And so it's no surprise that a few years later, every crisis gets a little bit bigger than the last one, and it all culminated in, in 2008 so far. And this this really, I mean, in its most basic form, it has to do with how toxicity 
must wash out of the system and how when it doesn't wash out of the system it just gets worse or it gets the contagion grows i mean is that a correct concept yes if you malinvestment and toxicity being of the same we have a policy of not allowing anyone to take their full losses you know if you look at 2008 housing prices were way too high and they fell but they probably should have fallen more instead the u.s government under both bush and obama it's not really a partisan you know if we Mm -hmm. get rid of the democrats we'll fix things if we get rid of the republicans we'll fix things it's really a a non-partisan problem is we want to protect people from losses and so instead of just letting house prices fall and letting the financial institutions take the defaults on all of this debt we started programs allowing people to put 3% down to buy a house with government insurance. And, of course, the Federal Reserve has been pushing mortgage rates down since since 2007. Record low mortgage rates last year. You can still get a mortgage for under 4%. And so rather than say house prices are overvalued, they need to go down so that people can afford to buy a house, we just have these government policies that allow people to borrow more and more and more money so they can pay these inflated prices. Same thing you see with with the stock markets, uh, you know, China is trying so hard to keep its stock market bubble inflated because they, they don't want people to be upset when they lose their money. They don't want people to lose their life savings. They don't want people to lose jobs because this inflated asset market mm-hmm. is propping up Chinese companies. You know, they borrow against their stock and they hire people. We have had, before 2008, we wouldn't allow people to take their losses. But since then, we've really doubled down on this policy and we have created for ourselves a global uh, problem. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, particularly when it comes to China, and I'm sure that this question is rhetorical and obvious, but why don't we fear the rise? <laughs> you know, why don't we feel the rise Why don't China? we fear the rise? Why, When we see the, the, the Shanghai up 60% on the year and the Shenzhen up 120, yeah. how come that doesn't scare us? Oh, I see what you're saying. Why, why aren't we afraid when the market is going up rather than when it's going down? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great point. You know, the doubling of a market in a short time period is just, it's never a good thing. And, you know, people often say, well, it's, it's some of it is based on fundamentals. We have technology revolution. And that's true, but if prices go too high, the correction is always going to be very, very painful. You know, you should never, as a personal investment rule, you shouldn't put money in the stock market that you're going to need for the next 10 years. You know, if people say, I want to invest in the stock market, the first thing is to build yourself up some savings so that you've mm-hmm. got emergency money. You know, don't put money in stocks until you've got that. You should be able to withstand a stock market fall. These people who sold their houses and put all of their money that they need right now into the stock market, whether it's in China today or whether it's, it was the U.S. back in uh, 1929, that is never, never a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that's interesting. Again, you are listening to Straight Talk Wealth Radio, by the way. We have to do this. is called a reset when you reset the who you are and what you're doing. And we are Straight Talk Wealth Radio. We are here every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on News Talk 1590 KVTA, in case you didn't know. And I am your <laughs> charming, obnoxious, you can pick the adjective, host, Bruce Whitey. But, you know, I love you guys. We had such a great chance to meet our client, meet our um, listeners. 
uh, in the years that we've been here at KVTA, uh, I don't feel uh, the need to put on any facade. I, I have fun doing the show. I have fun meeting you guys. Most of our listeners are very social uh, people. And uh, the thing I love about doing this show, I have to say, is I get to be myself. So that being said, um, I do want to go back to another thing she's talking about here, which is, you know, I mentioned early in the show that, you know, so often we do interviews with people that are talking to investors. Well, Nicole Gelinas here, who is a senior fellow at Manhattan Institute, who uh, I discovered uh, in terms of my interest in her when she did the, the video for Prager University, outstanding series of videos on YouTube. Uh, and I found this one on why governments should not bail out the big banks and looked her up and got this interview. And so here I am talking to her, but she's such a, an academic viewpoint, meaning that it's almost a sociological viewpoint. She's looking at, you know, what does this mean to jobs? What do these things mean to holding up the middle class in America? But then she says something very simple, which is like from an academic viewpoint, which is, if you're worrying about what's going to happen to your stocks, that's just a wrong indication to begin with. What What are you doing in stocks if you're worried where they're going? She just said you shouldn't be in stocks if you can't wait 10 years. So guess what? If you're close to 60 and you're sitting in stocks and some of you who I know personally who are listening to the show are in their 80s. And they're still heavily in stocks? That's not sensible. Stocks can fall for 10 years. These things that we talk about on this show. And again, I'm not a stockbroker. I'm not giving you financial advice. By law, I can't say this and I can't say that. And, you know, check with your own advisors. And everything that you say about one field has to be licensed to another field, etc., etc. But let's get sensible here. We know that these markets can have 10 years of calamity. It wasn't going on until the 1990s, but by 2000, we've now seen it twice. And you just heard Nicole say, I wouldn't even be in any stocks. I couldn't wait 10 years for a result on. So this is what we just see that is just drives me crazy is people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. I mean, yes, if you're in your 60s and you've created some sort of parsing between your savings and your investments... Savings being the money that you're not willing to have a loss on. And investments being the money that you're not going to try to critically time. It might be at a loss when you need it, so you better not need it right now. You might have to wait. That would be the proper way to be sort of situated in your in your investments. But if you can't wait that long, they shouldn't be investments. You just heard that. And that's why we talk so much about these bubbles and what's going on. Hey, if you want a copy of Nicole's book, uh, we have 10 of them to give away. I'm sure we have a few calls in right now. I haven't looked at the board. So it's probably whittling down, but you better call fast. The book is called After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington. Her office was kind enough to send us 10 books. And the number to call right now to get your copy of the book is 888 And I want to read you uh, just some comments about her book. I read one from Steve Forbes earlier. This is one from John Steele Gordon. He said, Nicole Gelinas has done the country a great favor by explaining concisely and cogently the origins of the financial crisis of 2008 and how... 
if we have the political will, we can avoid a repeat in the future. After the Fall is an instant classic that should be required reading in both Washington, D.C. and Wall Street. That is from John Steele Gordon, author of An Empire of Wealth, and Epic History of American Economic Power. So, a uh, great book by Nicole. You can get it right now if you call 888-882-5578. You cannot have called us in the last year. I'm sorry, but guys that have called in the last year, you've got a lot of other good stuff. By the way, we're also going to throw in, when we send you this book, we're going to throw you in my copy of my illustrated 50-page report called Inflation or Deflation? Question mark. America's Monetary System in Crisis and How to Plan for It. And uh, a perfect adjoiner to this book. Again, the number is 888 Okay, we have one more uh, time for one more clip of this interview, and then we will pick it up and do the remainder of the interview next week on the show. Uh, on this one, it's very interesting. Again, this, the 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 sociological viewpoint about this. Uh, Nicole talks about how we've had uh, a sustainable economy only with decreasing earnings and increasing credit, which is going to not end well. People are making less, but they have more credit. That seems to have sustained the economy. But when the credit gets so big that the decreasing income can't pay it off, we have trouble. And that's what she gets into in the next uh, clip. In its essence, then, if we... If we have this urge to keep people from having losses, if, you know, I mean, this runs a lot of levels. Who cares about some big multimillionaire investor who's bought bonds or some hedge funds that bought bonds and banks and they're going to take losses? But it seems like the little guy, uh, the, the, the real destruction and the potential political upheaval and the blood in the street comes from uh, the, the lower end of the spectrum who loses everything, then they have nothing to lose when we have chaos in the society. So what problem are we trying to solve in the business cycle or the investment cycle? What, what's the problem that we're trying to solve that we've maybe been applying the wrong solution of the government will always be there to socialize the losses? Well, I mean, the, the main problem that we're trying to solve is that everybody should have a job and everybody should have enough money to live on. I mean, that is a very broad, broad goal, and there are many different ways you can get there. You know, some people would say, we shouldn't subsidize any jobs. If you make minimum wage, you should go out and get yourself a better education and a better job. Other people would say, government should do income transfers, which we do, mm-hmm. and it's top up low-wage jobs with extra income. You know, so obviously many, many different ways to get there. But the basic societal goal is everyone is working, everyone has enough money to live and to also support themselves in in retirement and so forth. The problem is we're not dealing with a lot of challenges that we face. You know, what what started to happen back in the 1980s? Wages started to fall. You know, 60% of Americans don't make any more than they made 35 years ago when you adjust for inflation and two owners, you know, the family today, you need two people making the same amount of money that one person could go to work 40 years ago and make all the money the other person could stay home. And that's so not, not my imagination. That's a true statistic. Yes, that you can you can look at the U.S. Census. Uh, I, I wrote a piece for the last issue of City Journal. Uh, at, it's at city-journal.org uh, mm-hmm. called Failure to Thrive and just citing some of these statistics that income has not grown. And of course, if you're a single parent, 
you're not you can't compare like to like if you are a single earner today it's probably because you're not married you are making one income and struggling to raise kids whereas 40 years ago oh, yeah. single earner was the man he went off to work the wife stayed home you know some people like that some people don't there are different benefits and drawbacks to the way we do things today but what is not debatable is that one person on average makes less money than than he or she did 40 years ago and why is that the factory jobs were either automated or they went abroad you know back in the 60s 70s they left the north for the south and then they started leaving for uh, Asia uh, the so, world's become a more competitive place we own yeah, the world after World War two right and we didn't really say well we we have serious problems you know if you lost a factory job you're probably never going to get a better job you know we glossed over all of this for years and years and what we did was say people aren't making any more money but you know what they they can borrow more money so I mean mm-hmm. 40 years ago a credit card was an unusual thing you know it, it, people would have to get a credit card so that they could rent a car or stay in a hotel or things like that but you didn't just sort of pile up your living expenses on a credit card when we started to liberalize the mortgage market people could borrow against their credit cards and then when they ran up too much debt they could take equity out of their houses and use that to pay down the credit card debt so people were using the rising value of their houses as a way to subsidize their day-to-day living expenses and you know the same thing with borrowing to buy a car uh, you can look at the federal reserve yeah no it's, it's a remarkable pivot that you're bringing up yeah. which is that as incomes have decreased access to credit has grown yes and anybody so, can borrow money and that did, did not used to be the case yeah absolutely and, right and so people just sort of stay permanently in debt and it's not just the good kind of debt like it's you could never save up the money to buy a house and so it's fine if you borrow maybe two or three times your annual income and then you really work hard on paying that debt off you know the goal of a mortgage if you ever watch death of a salesman the goal of the mortgage is to pay the mortgage off you know you don't want to be stuck 30 years later still owing money on the house but that is a position a lot of people in their 50s and 60s are in mm-hmm. and things like borrowing for a car you know there there should really be no need for that borrowing for education people used to work part-time jobs and work in the summer to pay for their education but these costs have gotten out of control, even as people's income has stayed the same or gone down, and so people made up the difference with borrowed money. And it kind of, by 2008, they had just borrowed so much money. I mean, there was nobody left to buy a house who hadn't bought a house, but the government has tried to solve this problem with even more debt. So then how does that exacerbate the swing of the, the natural swing of a business cycle, which will have growth and then there'll be losers that come in late on growth or malinvest in growth that's eventually going to contract and then some people have to get hurt? How is that? How has that swing in American uh, families and the way that they uh, support their lifestyle, how has that exacerbated the result of the business cycle? Well, I think some recessions, it's probably made better. If you, if you look back in 2000, 2001, 
when the tech bubble burst and then after 9-11, George W. Bush said to go out shopping. If you want to be patriotic, you should go out to the mall and and buy things. You know, the government was terrified people would stop spending because they were just feeling bad. And so what did the Federal Reserve do? They pushed mortgage rates down so that people's house values went up. We kind of started the housing bubble. And over the next few years, people felt wealthier because the value of their house was going up. So they did keep up their consumer spending. didn't have this borrowing culture, we probably would have had a much deeper recession. But it's sort of a short-term gain at the cost of a bigger problem in the long term. I mean, at some point, we've got to say we just cannot keep borrowing money from the rest of the world to maintain our consumption. We have to learn how to start producing and exporting more again. And we also need a way for people to be able to, to maintain a middle-class lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Straight Talk Wealth Radio. We are here every Sunday morning at 1590 KVTA in Ventura. Uh, I am interviewing today Nicole Gelinas. I discovered Nicole Gelinas uh, for my own. I'm sure she's been discovered before me. <laughs> but I discovered her on a Dennis Prager University, Prager University video, of which there's a slew of them on YouTube. Great stuff. Uh, people explaining certain key concepts that we all need to understand in how economics works, how politics works, what goes on in the world, and lots of good graphics that sort of back that up. And she was talking on a video about, which we just played earlier in the show, about why uh, large banks should not be bailed out by the government. You know, uh, I want to say a couple comments. One is, I I find that very interesting that this is something that I... you know, we live in such a polarized political climate today. And anybody who's on the left has got to destroy someone on the right. The guy on the right's got to destroy the guy on the left. And when you talk about bailing out banks, I don't think people have a clue what side of the spectrum it is on. And they can't make up their mind. They want to defend it. If it was Obama's move, they want to defend it. But Bush bailed out the banks. But Obama's spending on stimulus and wow, I can't figure this one out. Which side of it is? Which side of it is it? We don't want the banks bailed out. Is that a left viewpoint or a right viewpoint? It's both. It crosses the line. So um, I just I'm, I'm always amused by how perturbed people get that really love their polarization and they can't figure out which side of the, the scale this issue is. Uh, this is where the two sides of the scale come together. This is the blending of Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party come together when it comes to bailing out banks. And uh, you're hearing today a little bit of historical perspective. Look, I only got a few minutes left. I just want to say, what do you, does this all mean to you? Why do we put this on the air? The reason we put this on there is we're trying to get you to understand that we have a bit of a false market. No, we have a large false market. Okay, It is built on zero interest rates. It is built on addiction to government supports, as you're hearing. And we are definitely afraid that the average Joe 401k and IRA, the average baby boomer that is getting close to retirement or is in retirement is whistling in a hurricane and is oblivion about the risk of the markets today. Now, you've been hearing it for a lot of years. You've been hearing it since the crash. We shouldn't have done all this. This is a historic experiment. It takes a while for $3 trillion of crack cocaine to go through the system before you finally have that crash and you need more. But at some point, 
You can't live off the stimulus. You can't live off of money printing. And somewhere there's a settling down. And what we're hearing about is that when you have zero interest rates and you have these other stimulus elements, then you're really causing an addiction and a false pricing and a false what's called price discovery in the markets. And so assets look great until they don't. And the stress lines on this you see in Europe and you're seeing it in China. The Chinese have a huge stock bubble right now and they're trying to figure out how to let the air out of it. You have asset bubbles all over the world and you have debt. Two things, you see, you can't have lots of wealth and lots of debt. And we've been doing that as a population with families. We've been doing it as countries. We've been doing that as investors. We've lived off of good assets based on debt. And somewhere, if you look around the globe, you see these two oddities. Debt is breaking and assets are really high. When that debt breaks, the assets come crumbling down. We suggest now... One thing is when you call 888-882-5578, 888-882-5578, you will get Nicole Gelinas' book today for free called After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington. If you haven't called us in the last year, but I want you to call this number now and get from us a free retirement roadmap. A retirement roadmap looks at what this means to you. What is your personalized plan? And I was surprised at the biggest interest we got in the seminar from people is the realization that this isn't about selling you a widget. It's not about, it is about what your personalized situation is. How long do you have? How much are you at risk? I'm finding people today, we're doing retirement roadmaps this week since the seminar, and I'm finding people that have passed the finish line that no longer need risk. And they don't know that they passed the finish line and they're still at risk. Their risk is they're going to lose the game they've already finished. Lots of different scenarios. We can help you when you call 888-882-5578. 888-882-5578. Get your free retirement roadmap. No cost, no obligation. We will help you get through the minefield of all the different decisions and possibilities. And, and what what could you be doing? What should you be doing? What are the alternatives? It starts with an analysis of who you are, what your needs are. We do it for free, no obligation. It is intensive. It is not something that we do that's just a flick of the wrist. It takes some data input from you. It takes us working on our software and looking at the different scenarios before we even sit down to meet with you to tell you what the scenarios are that we've been discovering, looking at, working on and kind of figuring out what is going to be right for you. So that's where this ends. That is the moral of all of this is find out how much risk do you really need in your portfolio? How much can you get out of your portfolio and make it to the finish line if you reduce risk? Where do you go to get a good return if you don't want to be at risk? What are your alternatives? We live in a we live in a world today where saving and uh, it's just, it's made, it's it's not feasible. It's 1% at the bank if you get out of the market. You must be at risk. Well, the risk is great, and we do have alternatives, and we can help you. The number for that is 888-882-5578. This time, it's not about the book. Ask for a retirement roadmap service. No charge, no obligation. 888-882-5578. 888-882-5578. for your free retirement roadmap. We will see you next week. We will finish the interview with Nicole Gelinas. Uh, We may hopefully have some more of the books left over to give out. 888-882-5578 for your free retirement roadmap. 
888-882-5578. See you next week. Content of Straight Talk Wealth Radio is for educational purposes only. Any discussion of financial products and their features is subject to change without notice. Consult your own tax, legal, or financial advisor as to your specific situation. Tax-free benefit specialists and insurance services. California license 0E48147.